Let us pray. Lord God, almighty God, ancient of days, you who have inspired this word now bring us to sit under it, to hear from it, and ultimately to hear from you through it. And so, Lord, we ask humbly that as we bow before your presence here in this place, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that hearing we may see rightly. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 It's good to be with you today, worshiping today on this first Sunday of Advent as we celebrate the coming of Jesus and as we make our way to the manger this Christmas season. Um, and, and this is my first Advent here. Um, as some of you know, I, I came in June with my family from a long way. And during that time, I was teaching at a seminary in Australia. During that time, I was reading a lot about leadership, reading a lot of books on leadership and articles on leadership. And sadly, when I was in Australia, I didn't always live up to the articles that I read. One of the things that they tell you never to do is like one of the first things that I did. And that is never check your email first thing in the morning. Practically all the articles say this. And I would check my email every morning. Before I cracked my eggs, I would crack open the inbox and I would look and see what do we have here. And uh, one particular morning, there were two emails in there, two, Mr. Popularity. <laughs> the first one was quite significant. It was a coupon from Domino's Pizza. <laughs> and that just proves all the experts wrong. I mean, it's fiscally responsible for me to be checking my email all the time. From my family's sake, for my sake, for the sake of nutrition itself. The second email, though, looked a bit scary. It was from the principal of the college that I was teaching at at the time, so that's one you want to pay attention to. It had come in really early in the morning, and it was one of those emails that just had a one-word subject line. It said, meeting, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> if it just said meeting, that would be one thing, but meeting, dot, dot, dot. That's always a scary thing, the ellipsis. I don't know why. So I figured I better open this one and be diligent here as I break the number one rule of leadership. But the email started really, really nicely. It said, hello, John. Uh, I hope your morning is starting off really well. I thought, this is great. It's really positive. But then it turned quite quickly. Well, if it is going good, it said, that's about to change. Drop whatever you're doing. Clear your schedule. We need to meet immediately. So now I started to say, maybe I shouldn't have opened my email up in the first place. Instant fear. I start thinking, what did I forget to do? What did I do? Uh, what, you know, what happened? I thought things were going good. Instant fear led to an instant reaction. You know, after about 30 seconds of prolific inventive catastrophizing, I decided I've got to call the office admin person, Belinda, at 6.15 a.m., just what every hard-working admin person wants over breakfast. A panicked call from a paranoid professor who's received a perplexing e-correspondence. She had no idea what I was talking about. She said, I don't think there's anything wrong. I, I talked to Paul yesterday. He seemed fine. So I decided then I've got to go straight to the source. So I called Paul now at 6.27 a.m. And the phone didn't even ring. It just went straight to voicemail. I thought... 
now he's really mad. He can't even pick up the phone to talk to me. And so, uh, about 20 minutes later, of course, Paul calls back. And, you know, I tell him what happened. I got the email. Whenever you want to meet, I can meet. It's not a problem. Whatever I did, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did. And he said, mate, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't send you any email. I'm not even in the office this week. I'm on, I'm on vacation. There's nothing wrong. Did you check who sent it to you? And I said, yeah, it says, it says Paul, you, Paul Jones. But when I went back to the email and checked, and you know how you hover over and you can see the actual address? It was not Paul. It was laura.smith at ghy4297.net. It's the .net that really makes you know this is not legit. Friends, it was then that I realized there was no meeting. There was no imagined transgression. Indeed, there was no Laura Smith. I had been scammed by the scammers. Instant, instant regret for opening it, but instant fear. In today's passage, we're going to look at Peter react in a similar way, albeit not at the hands of a fictitious e-robot named Laura, but at the sight of a transfigured Jesus on the mountain. And what we're going to do is by looking at Peter, we're going to learn a little bit about ourselves and how we react in situations based on fear. And we're going to learn a lot about who Jesus is and how Jesus alone provides the lens through which by seeing we have to hear first in order to be able to see correctly. We're going to see that Peter, uh, we're going to see that like Peter, we act impulsively out of fear. That's where we're going to go first. And Peter says some really wild stuff here. We're going to see that we act fearfully out of ignorance. And then finally, we're going to see that we act ignorantly out of our deep, desperate need for divine revelation. So let's look at this passage together. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll start at verse 2 and we'll go to verse 6. Mark chapter 9 verse 2. We act impulsively out of fear. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and he led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, as we begin to unpack this, I want to focus firstly on the fact that the text tells us that Peter, James, and John were taken up the mountain. They were led up the high mountain by Jesus. And that's significant because it shows us that actually what's happening is not for the benefit of Jesus. It's for the benefit of the disciples. Jesus wants to teach the disciples something new. It's almost as if God not only wants to transfigure and transform Jesus' physical appearance, but he wants to transform the understanding of the apostles through this act. Now, one could initially wonder, why is Peter so taken aback? Why is he so freaked out on the mountain? After all, it's Peter who in verses, in chapter 8, verse 29, has already declared to Jesus, you are the Christ, 
Peter's the one who said that, not only a, a few verses before this. Well, it's important to remember, though, that the word Christ simply means anointed one. It is not a synonym for divine. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah, and the Jews were expecting a Messiah, of course, and Peter is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, but in saying Christ or Messiah, the ancient Jews did not think like we do that the Christ is God. The Jews are expecting a human figure, the Messiah, the anointed one, to come and lead them into a time of blessing at the end times through which Israel would be a blessing to the world. That's what the Jews are expecting from a Messiah. What really ruffles Peter on this mountain is the fact that Jesus is shining. He's, he's glowing with this luminous, bright, white light. Now, what is the significance of that? Actually, it says in the text, a light that nobody on earth could achieve by bleaching. Well, throughout the New Testament, the angels and the righteous in heaven are always depicted as wearing bright, shining white garments or enshrined in light. And in Psalm 104, God himself, it says, is wrapped in light as with a garment. So what we have here is Peter who already knew that Jesus was the Christ, making the connection now, fearfully, that the one who is the Christ is also God. And Peter had no category for that. And so what does Peter do? He just kind of thinks about things for a while and remains silent. Peter, always the reserved one, never to speak out of turn. No, Peter's like, I should say something. And he does. But here's the weird thing. In verse 5, right, this is what it says. The ESV says, and Peter said to Jesus, a fine translation. But actually, literally, what's in the Greek, there's an extra word. And it's actually literally, and Peter answered and said to Jesus. Or Peter responded and said to Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Why would I bring that up in a sermon? Is it just because I'm a geek who likes to talk about Greek? Yes and no. It's usually that when we see this Greek rendering, it's someone asking Jesus a question, and then Jesus answers and says to them whatever he's going to say. In other words, someone's directly speaking to Jesus, and Jesus directly responds. But here's the thing in this passage. The narrative has Jesus, Moses, and Elijah having a weird, luminescent conversation. And Peter is not part of that conversation. And yet the text says, Peter responded. He spoke into that conversation. His, per his first impulse, based on fear, was to respond. Mark 9, verse 6 says, Peter didn't know how to respond. So I guess Peter said, I'm just going to do it anyway. Luke's, and, and many of us, right, would do the same thing. Luke's version is actually even more comical. In Luke 9.33, it says, Peter did not know what he said. Right? He, he didn't know what to say, and he didn't know after he said it what he even said. It just sort of came out. This is another instance of no-filter Peter just kind of making an appearance here. Why the impulsiveness? Text tells us. They were terrified. Like us, Peter speaks impulsively out of fear. Think of the times that you might have spoken impulsively out of fear. The result, I'm sure, is not your shining moment. It's not your personal best. 
right? I think of some societal things that we have that we all partook in when we had the great toilet paper caper when COVID first hit. We feared and then went to the store and stocked up on all sorts of stuff and then the, the shelves were empty. We acted on fear. Jumping to conclusions after we look at WebMD, right? All of a sudden, we're all doctors now. Now that Google exists, we, we don't need a doctor. We can diagnose ourselves. It's the worst thing. It's nothing. It's everything, right? Instead of having all the information, we act on fear and limited information, and we act impulsively. Receiving an email, a real one, from your real boss or colleague, right? Have you ever done this? And there's a letter that you should have maybe written but not sent, but you sent it. You respond in haste. Maybe the email rubs you the wrong way and you respond. You come across as angry or arrogant or foolish. And then you go back and read the original email and realize you read it totally wrong. It wasn't as bad as you thought and now you feel foolish because you've acted impulsively. You know, in all of these scenarios, we act impulsively based on fear, which is what Peter does in this instance. But is there something we can do to kind of step in? It, it, basically, is our lot to always act that way? Are we always just going to rush in and act in impulse? Or is there another way that we can respond? Well, it may seem simplistic, but one of the key things that we're going to find when Jesus speaks I mean, what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Anytime that we see the world, we see the world through a word. I know that sounds weird. We see the world through a word. It's either a word that we've gotten from ourselves, from inside, deep within. My emotions are telling me this is how the world is. And we speak a word out of ourselves. Or we hear a word from some ideological book we're reading or from some great work of art. And we see the world through that word. What we're going to learn today is that actually we have to hear before we can see. We have to hear the word of God speak revelation to us before we can act rightly and perceive rightly in the world. So how would we do that as a Christian? Well, you're here. That's a good start. The word of God is being preached. That's a good start. The best place to hear God's word is to come to God's word. But friends, we need more. We need more. We just had Thanksgiving. I've been in Australia for five years. We didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. I had a Thanksgiving meal where it wasn't even that big and I couldn't move after it. I literally laid on the couch and I heard my wife saying, John, John, from upstairs. And I texted her, I'm laying like a slug. Do we devour the word with that sort of feasting? Or are we willing to settle for a soundbite and a snippet, which is really just like a carrot, a single carrot on a plate, and that we think, we'll just have this one carrot, it's going to last us the whole week. We're malnourished in the word, almost all of us. And that isn't to condemn us, it's to convict us to say, if we want to see rightly, we have to first hear rightly. And how are we going to hear unless we hear from God in his word? And so what does that look like? We're coming into a new year. Some of you have scripture reading plans. This is good. This is good. It gives you a wide view of all of scripture. But if we read very broadly and not very deeply, we run the risk 
of not having the information and revelation we need and the clarity we need to respond in those moments of fear out of hearing God's word. How do we know God's word? We read it, but we have to study it. Now, some people say, that's, of course you'd say that. You've been a professor for 10 years. You like to study, John. We have this idea that studying God's word is unspiritual, but devotional reading of God's word is unstudious. But I want to suggest that if every word, as Jesus said, in this book is breathed from the mouth of God by his Holy Spirit, and that the content of this book is not kind of magical spells or just magical words, but words and sentences and ideas expressed by God, then the deep, studious engagement with God's word is not anti-spiritual. It's the most spiritual thing we can be doing. To be in the word broadly is good. To be studying the word is not a spiritual drag. It's a spiritual discipline. And it will give you a feast that will sustain you and feed you. And it will be the listening lens that you need so that when impulse strikes, when fear strikes, you're not just coming from within inside of you with whatever word you can bring, but you're coming from the very word of God as it's etched upon your soul. Peter speaks impulsively out of fear. That's the first thing. Secondly, Peter speaks fearfully out of ignorance. Verse 5. Read verse 5 with me. Answering, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now this is a weird passage. You have a glowing Jesus next to some visionary characters. And people are like, how did Peter know it was Elijah and Moses? Right? Like they didn't have a yearbook where they could be like, yep, it's the beard. That's Moses. And then, you know, this is Elijah. He wore that robe. It's a mystery, right? So it's this weird passage. It's a very peculiar passage. But actually, if you asked a Jew in the day, what is the deal with Moses and Elijah why those two? Out of all the people it could have been, why not David? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Isaiah? Why not Habakkuk? You know, Ezekiel. Why Moses and Elijah? Actually, the Jews of that day would tell you these two people in particular are the exact specific people that we expect before the Messiah returns. These two people, Moses and Elijah. And we're going to parse that out a bit. But practically speaking, what, what does their presence achieve? I want to say two things. I want to say that it clarifies who Jesus is not and it verifies who Jesus is. It clarifies who Jesus is not. On a practical level, the presence of Elijah and Moses next to Jesus shows that Jesus is not either Moses or Elijah. Now, why would that matter? Well, earlier in Mark, chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, when Jesus asked Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? Who is one of the people that they say that Jesus is? Peter says, some say Elijah. Now, in virtue of Jesus standing next to these two figures, Jesus, by contrast, is clarified. He is not Elijah or Moses. He's someone else. He's the Messiah who those figures prepare the way for and point to. Next, their presence verifies who Jesus is. This is because within Judaism, these two figures, as I say in particular, 
were expected before the Messiah returned. How can I say that? Two verses in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5, and Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. These are Old Testament verses looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. These were verses that the Jews knew and read and talked about all the time in the ancient world to prepare the way for the Messiah. First, Elijah and then Moses would come. Here, Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horab for all Israel. Hear this. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And see, Jews took that prophecy in Malachi and it says in this passage that the scribes, at the end of this passage, the scribes were talking about how Elijah must come. Where would they get that idea? From texts like this in Malachi verse chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, while Moses is talking to Israel, he says this to Israel, looking forward to the future. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And in Judaism, the prophet who is like Moses was prophesied to come at the time of the Messiah. And it's interesting. Look at how that passage ends. It is to him you shall listen. What do we hear at the end of our passage? We hear, behold, my beloved son, listen to him. This is Jesus, not just alongside the law and alongside the prophets. This is Jesus summing up the law represented through Moses and summing up the prophets represented through Elijah. He's the fulfillment and completion of them. He's not them. Now, Peter's response here, I say, is ignorant. And I don't mean that as an insult. Um, how could he have known what's happening? Nobody knew at the time, right? And neither would we. But Peter responds, and in his response, something telling is there. We start to see how Peter thinks inside. What is his suggestion? It's this weird suggestion. Hey, let me set up three tents. There's going to be one tent for Elijah, one tent for Moses, and one tent for Jesus. Now, that just seems like a quirky, weird suggestion, which it is. We think of the word tent, though, and we think camping, Coleman, you know, July, summer, coolers, camping, tents. Is that what a Jew thought? I don't know. Maybe they went camping. Um, but the Jews, when they heard the word tent here, the word tent is the same word for the word tabernacle. And the word tabernacle is highly significant for Jews because before the temple has been built in Jerusalem where God dwelt, where was God's presence with the Jews? In the tabernacle, which is a skene, a tent. It's the same word. So when the Jews are hearing this and when the Jews are saying this, it's like they're saying, let's set up Elijah in a tabernacle and Moses in a, a tent tabernacle and Jesus in a tabernacle. However, the New Testament, as we go on in Hebrews 9, talks about Jesus entering through a greater tabernacle. And Jesus himself in John 1, 1, 14 is said to dwell among us in flesh. And that word dwell among us is literally tabernacled among us. Jesus himself is not only the fulfillment of the law, 
in Moses, Jesus himself is not only the fulfillment of the prophets in Elijah and all the writing prophets as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's presence among us, not in a building, not in a tent, in his own body. And yet, and yet Peter wants to set up past aspects of salvation history of the Jews, past elements of the tradition in their own tents alongside Jesus as co-equal with him. And I wonder if we sometimes do the same thing in our ignorance. In our fear, we spout out strange things and in our ignorance, we want to compartmentalize our Christ. You stay siloed, Jesus, in your own tent. That's the Jesus tent. And I've got a lot of other tents that really matter to me and that make me look good to other people and that make me a little bit less embarrassed about this weird Christian thing that I do. And those are the tents that make up the hierarchy of needs that make me a so-called complete person. And we want to bring those other tents along and keep Jesus in his place, in his right tent. So that we can invite him out every once in a while to speak into the occasion. We have to ask ourselves, is Jesus all or is Jesus only part? After all, when they raise their heads from their fear... What do they see? Their worldviews, everything else they brought to the table? Moses, Elijah? No. When they raise their heads after hearing God speak, all that they see is Jesus alone. Because Jesus alone is the listening lens that we must go to, apart from which we can't see rightly, we can't perceive correctly, and therefore we act impulsively and out of fear and really, in which we have no hope. You know, there's this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's kind of a, a geeky term. And what it is, though, you might have heard of this, is that we get our theology, yeah, from the Bible, of course. We're Christians from the Bible. But we also, look, we're sophisticated. We also have tradition and experience and reason. We're not, you know, fundamentalists who just come to the Bible. We have all these other things. And it's often spoken of, and I remember hearing this when I was in college. And I remember hearing this, you know, a lot in Australia. Look, my experience sometimes tells me a different story. It brings me a different word to look through. My experience is a better word sometimes than Scripture. My experience tells me, like, my neighbors, they don't agree with me on these ethical issues. Or my, my neighbors, they're a different religion. But they're good folks. What's the difference, right? And, and, and so maybe when Jesus says, I'm the only way, maybe... Maybe my experience can kind of shape this to make this a little bit more manageable, a little bit more sophisticated. Do you ever get yourself thinking like that? Or, or tradition. I've got these traditions that, that I care about, religious traditions and all sorts of other ones, and they're going to shape how I read this. They're actually going to be in their own tents alongside of this. And sometimes the Bible seems unreasonable, so I'm going to use reason to make what is very unreasonable in this text reasonable and sophisticated and there we have a complete full life each tent set up beside each other i want to encourage you that when you open your eyes after listening to the lord there is only one tabernacle there is only one word it's the word that speaks a better word than any word we can create in our art and our culture and all the things we congratulate ourselves for it is the word of god spoken through the very person of jesus christ Every other word is an inferior word that lets us down. We speak ignorantly 
And here we'll conclude. But it's because we have a desperate need for divine revelation. We have a desperate need to hear from God. And that can only happen when God breaks in and speaks amongst all the other words that are trying to vie for our attention and affection. It's Jesus' word that speaks a better word, Hebrews says. Here, verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them and there was a voice from the cloud and it said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no one except Jesus only. This is my beloved son, listen to him. You might have come today to observe the word, to look at it and hear about it. But the point of being the church who sits under the word of God is not to observe it to somebody else, but it's to obey the word. Are you prepared to obey the word of God? To let it sit over you rather than under you. To inform every other word. You know, when Moses came down the mountain, we read about it in Exodus 34, said his face was glowing. When he came down the first time, Moses came down with the word of God in tablets of stone. It's amazing, right? And he walked down the mountain with the word in his hand. How much better in the new covenant that when we walk down the mountain after hearing and being given a lens through which we can then see the world properly. How much better that we don't walk down with tablets of stone in our hands, but what do the disciples do? They walk down with the word next to them. Moses walked down with the word of God in stones. We walk down with Jesus, the word of God incarnate. And how does he come to us? Through the text of Holy Scripture. And in Scripture today, he speaks to you and he implores you, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Obedience to the word precedes the way we see. Obedience to the word precedes our optics. We cannot see things rightly. We cannot act rightly until we first heard revelationally. We need revelation to break in. And here's the fact. Peter is foolish. Peter is impulsive. Peter is ignorant and so are we. And so the message today is not, so don't be foolish ever again. How's that going to work out for you? Don't be impulsive ever again. Now go and love and serve the Lord. No, no, no. The minute you walk out that door, the minute I walk out that door, it's going to happen again, isn't it? We're going to come down the mountain and everyone's going to be singing, shine, Jesus, shine, feel you. No. Not that that would be bad. I love, the, I love those old Maranatha songs. We're going to come down the mountain and we're going to be brought to our knees again. We're going to come down the mountain and we're going to say, I'm not the person I thought I was going to be. I'm not the person that other people need me to be. I'm not the person that I want to be. They deserve more. They need more, and I'm not that. We're going to look at things that break in and encroach upon our joy, death and despair in our own lives and other people's lives, and we're going to drop to our knees and put our faces down and say, I fear, I fear. And when we lift our heads, the question is, what word will we see through? And the word that I want you to see through today, for the rest of your life, and for generations, is this word. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so I implore you in the name of Jesus, if you're going to listen to any word, 
Listen first to the word of God. For only when we rightly hear can we then rightly see. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we tremble when we read about you and we marvel that we will someday see you face to face. But Lord, we are grateful that when we come to your word, it is not unable to mediate your covenant and person to us, but then when we come to your word through your spirit, we meet you. And we have nothing we could add to that, Lord. And so we put our hands out in a posture of receptivity and say, Lord, we want to hear so that we can see. Help us this Advent draw greater clarity as our Christ draws near and as we await his second coming. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.